0: Well, what are we to do when the world seems to be spinning out of control? When I ask that, I don't mean, as I ask that to Christian brothers and sisters, I don't mean to ask, how are we to preserve our own lives when the world is spinning out of control? But for the sake of this lost world, what are we to do and how are we to do it? I am well aware of the turmoil that's facing our country right now. We just prayed for that as a church body. Yesterday, uh, my wife and I took our kids to an indoor trampoline park, and while we were there, just trying to mind our own business and having fun with the kids, there's a giant TV up on the wall with the news uh, saying all the things that are going down in the world. And it just—it said as we walked in the door, uh, President-elect Biden, next president in the U.S., and uh, the cameras. Uh, switched to groups of people celebrating in the streets. The crowds were waving flags. They were celebrating in revelry. All the things to observe in that moment were not surprising, not surprising, but shocking in a certain way, right? So I couldn't help but wonder... What are we to do when we find ourselves facing utter godlessness everywhere we look? We can take great comfort in the fact that our gospel does not require a finely tuned, highly controlled environment to survive. As though it were some finicky house plant that wilts if not provided with precisely the right amount of water and light. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ thrives in the most hostile of environments. The Christian mission, as commanded by Jesus, is battle ready. This is why there is a very real way in which Christians become enthusiastic as worldly chaos increases. Not because we like chaos, not because we like revelry of wickedness, not because we like bad things, sinful things happening but because we can see that God is on the move. The hearts of the lost are being stirred. The spirits of the evangelists are being provoked. The safety nets that we all regularly enjoy are torn down, and the adrenaline starts pumping. I said this many times before in 2020. This is an amazing time to live as a Christian. We ought not want to live in any other time and place. This is an exceptional time. And God has us here for a reason. Today, I'm going to read through a very familiar text. The passage we're going to be covering today is Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. For the next two weeks, I'm breaking from our Hebrews uh, journey. We're going to be doing a couple of other sermons. And then we'll return back to Hebrews in a couple of weeks. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be in a very famous evangelistic passage where the Apostle Paul preaches to the people at Athens verses 16 through 34. I'm going to read through this familiar text, and then I'm going to go walk back through it a verse or two at a time. Our pace today through the text is going to be a bit quick. We're not going to linger too long on these uh, verses while we could. And I want you to see some things here. There's something about the missionary evangelist Apostle Paul And the way that he approaches the situation in Athens that I think should be challenging and even encouraging to us as Christians, especially in light of the things that are happening in our world. So we're going to read through, and I'm going to draw out three critical principles that we can, and I will argue that we must, apply today. Let me give you the setup, and then we'll read through. Paul's first missionary journey took place before this passage, and it had been quite dangerous up to and including a point at which Paul was being stoned. There's a way that they tried to execute the death penalty on a person on the street. He was left for dead and miraculously, it would seem, survived that encounter. And even though it was quite clear that things were heating up in the Roman world and that things were almost certainly going to get worse, Paul sets out on his second missionary journey. And this one will be much longer. And cover a much larger area than his first. He begins this journey with his traveling companion, Silas, and the two are soon joined by a young man named Timothy and a doctor named Luke. They experience much fruit, but they also experience persecution. And as a result of those trials, they're split up as a group. And Paul ends up in Athens, waiting until he could rejoin his companions and continue on his missionary expedition. Let's go ahead and read that text. we will pray, and then we'll go back through it, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked... But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray. Father this morning as we read this famous sermon by the apostle Paul help us to see with clarity what is being conveyed. Help us to gain from this encounter what you have designed for us to gain from it. Let us stick close to your word. Let us obey this text. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Going back through that passage. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul, as a result of some trials that happened previously in this passage, found himself split up. From his traveling companions, and he was alone in Athens. Uh, He had been sent there by some Christians from his previous uh, portion of the journey, uh, running from persecution. This is something that happens in Paul's day quite often. He goes in until riots happen in a particular city, and it's typical that the Christians help get him out of that place to the next place so he can continue on, lighting the world on fire with the gospel. So he's in Athens. He'll be uh, eventually joined by Timothy, Silas, and Luke, who are no longer with him at this point. He's supposed to lay low, we can expect. Go hang out. <laughs> this might be find a garden apartment with one uh, person apiece in the city, perhaps. And he notices that the city is full of idols. Even though it would have been expected for him, perhaps, to not do much, his spirit was stirred. He was provoked. You see that? Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. Provoked. This is a right response to wickedness. We should never become so familiar with sin that we are no longer moved by it. Sin should make us uncomfortable. There are a great many Christians today who think that it is helpful and wise to get accustomed to the ways of the world I actually remember arguing this with my parents when I was a teenager. I wanted to go see a movie with my teenage friends, and the movie would not have been helpful for me as a young man battling lust and the pride of life. Uh, my parents would say, I don't know if that's the best thing for you to do. But really, if I get to see this movie, then I'll be able to reach my friends for Jesus more. If I can just know all of their songs and all those lyrics, and I can get to know all the dirty jokes, and I can get to know the ways in this world like an expert, then I'll be a missionary. There was, of course, no part of me that was provoked by the sin I observed. Rather, I wanted to taste it, just like the rest of the world did. As I familiarized myself with sin, practiced what the world practiced, I was shaped by it. I was more shaped by it than the truth. I was once told by a very wise older woman regarding peer pressure and the influence of people in the world, she says... About trying to impact that lost world, she said, to keep this in mind. If you put a white glove in mud, the mud doesn't become glovy." You know, the Apostle Paul completely disagrees with the folly of young rich. I want to be like the world so I can reach them better." The folly of that thinking. Romans 16:19 says, "But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil." You should be like a babe, like a child as to what is evil. I don't, I, don't, I don't know that movie. I've never seen that. I don't understand that joke. It doesn't make sense to me. But here's what I do know you're going to die someday, and you're going to stand before an all holy God. You, you see where I'm going? Paul was provoked. Provocation leads to gospel witness. That's what happens next, right? So, what did he do when he was provoked? He went out and started proclaiming the good news. That's what he did. This is why the greatest evangelists that I know personally are the Christians who are most provoked in their spirits by sin. They hate it. They see it. It makes them uncomfortable, and they want to do something about it. Perhaps today, many Christians are becoming provoked, prompted, compelled by the folly of the sins of the world. Brothers and sisters, that's a good thing. Paul started evangelizing. And how did he do it? By going to the places where he could find people, to so the cultural watering holes, the synagogues where the religious people of his background went. He found the, the people, the devout persons, and into the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And there were people there, Paul wanted to be there proclaiming the gospel. And what did he do? He reasoned with them. See that in verse 17? So he reasoned. Rejection of God is unreasonable. Our gospel is absolutely reasonable. He continues on. There's much that could be said about all these passages. I want you to see a big flow together today. So we're going to go a little faster than typical. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus. And the resurrection. The Epicureans were ancient deists. They did not deny the existence of a deity, but believed that it did not intervene in the affairs of man. Additionally, the Epicureans believed that the chief end of man was to avoid all pain and suffering. These Stoic philosophers, on the other hand, were students of logic. They pursued the repression of all pain joy, grief, and pleasure, perhaps a little bit like some modern-day Buddhists. These two groups, though, were the intellectuals of their day. Paul reasoned with them as well. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean." The Areopagus was a rocky outcropping in Athens. It was a hill named after the Greek god of war, Ares. The Roman name for the Greek god Ares is Mars. Pagos is hill, so this was Mars Hill. In ancient times, it was home to a court where people would gather together, hear cases. And while Paul's not necessarily being tried, it was a place of public appeal where he could present some new thinking. For the record, this is a street preacher's dream situation, isn't it? They gather me together. They put me in the middle of all the people around, and they say, tell us your gospel, Paul. This is what is the result of him being bold in the square, the public square, the marketplace, the synagogues. People knew something was being preached. This Jesus, this resurrection from the dead, they were intrigued by it, and they wanted to hear more. Now we get to hear Paul's famous sermon at Mars Hill. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul, I think I missed a verse here. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's just a quick, helpful point. This is what the people were devoted to. They wanted to hear new and fresh thoughts. And so Paul said, done. I'll capitalize on that. Here's a new and fresh thought. I passed by this altar to an unknown God. He starts with a very famous starting point. In fact, if you were to take a course at a Bible college or a seminary on contextualization, you will almost certainly spend a significant amount of time here, here in probably John 4, where Jesus talks to the woman at the well. But this is one of the the critical passages for contextualizing the gospel. Here's what I'm going to say about that today. It is true that many people have taken great liberty with these verses. These verses have even been used to approve of many unorthodox approaches to evangelism. But really, at a quick reading, it's quite simple, isn't it? In three short sentences, Paul goes from the false worship of these Greeks to a full-blown, God-exalting, street evangelism message. You think you know God, but you don't. Let me tell you about him. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath And everything. Paul's about to go right to the heart of his audience's errors. Not only does he claim that there is a singular creator God who provides everything for his creation, but he even mocks the many temples and altars that have been erected all over Athens and the rest of the Roman world. He appeals to the same kind of idea that even the Jewish ancients knew about when they built the temple to God in Jerusalem, the only actually authorized temple ever built in the history of the world. Solomon, as he's building that temple, says this about it, the house that I'm about to build will be great for God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a house since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? Paul well knew that all the ancient believers realized that no place that could ever be made on earth could contain God. These Romans, however, had a much too low a view of him. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God created all mankind. This would be shaming to the national pride of these Romans, who thought of all others outside of the Roman world as the barbarians, those who weren't part of the Roman system, the Roman cities built on the Greek uh, cities before them, they were the barbarians. They were those who were seen as less. This was a form of ancient racism that has existed all the way back to even these days. And Paul, in so saying these things, Makes it clear that it is not just regional gods that have control and authority over particular areas and landscapes, like many of these Greeks thought, these Romans thought, but there was one singular God who gave to mankind everything, and it is He who is God over all of the lands, all of the nations, all of their boundaries, all of their allotted time periods. The reason that the Romans were in power that day is not because of their might, not because of how powerful they were, not because of their ability to influence the world around them, but because God had allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place. Even the Romans, their cities, their system itself was ultimately owing to the providence of God. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Here, Paul quotes two Greek philosophers, two citations. If you look in your Bible, you'll see uh, quotations there, probably be indented. He quotes Epimenides and Eratus, showing that he was actually familiar with Greek writing of the time. And rather than revel in that knowledge, he grabs that and points it to a truth he wants to proclaim. He builds on this to say that God is not like the idols they make because he made us, not the other way around. I've heard it said that God made mankind in his image, and ever since we've been returning the favor. This is the central problem with all idols is that they come from the art and imagination of mankind. That's the problem with idols. This is why God doesn't say, it's fine to worship me. You you can, you can make an idol as long as it's to represent me. Because there would be limitations necessarily formed into that idol that would cause us to think wrongly about him. This is why we were commanded, even in the Ten Commandments, to not have any idols, even of God. Because our minds cannot capacitate the nature of God. And we are not to try to form Him into what we want Him to be. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. As the gospel spreads to all nations, God will no longer overlook this ignorance category. Judgment is coming, and God will judge the world by Jesus. Oftentimes I have questions on on the side of the street when we're talking to people who ask About uh, the boy on the island. What about the ignorant person? What about the person who's ignorant of the gospel? What does God do with them? The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It's really easy for people to come up with a hypothetical situation of a potential person on an island who's never heard the gospel. But as this sermon is coming out of the mouth of Paul, any hope any hope for a person to appeal to ignorance is gone they hear the gospel whether they will respond will determine where they go judgment is coming he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed this is jesus he, and of this he has given assurance of all to all by raising him from the dead God has fixed a day. He knows its date. He will judge all of humanity. And he will judge it rightly with righteousness. And he will judge the world by Jesus. And God has given assurance to that fact by raising Jesus from the dead. One of the things that the resurrection accomplishes is that it confirms that everything that Jesus said was true. I talk to my kids at night and we do our family worship time and it is very, very common that as I'm reading through a paragraph or two of of some text of the Bible and making explanation about what's being stated in there, that I I will note that people in the world will take this passage and say it's not true. I will note, listen, the Bible says this, but the world will say this. The world will argue that's not true. I try to prepare my children for the fact that the people out there are oftentimes going to try to reject what the Bible says quite plainly. But then I ask, as I say, listen, listen kids, the Bible says that if we do not repent of our sins and turn in faith to Jesus, we'll go to hell forever. And it is only by belief in Jesus that we may have eternal life. The Bible says this. Jesus says this. The apostles said this over and over and over on every page. And there will be people who will lie to you about this. But you have to ask yourself one question. Did they raise from the dead? The resurrection from the dead was the final and ultimate confirmation that Jesus is who he said that he was. This is why Paul hammers over and over again. Without the resurrection, we've got nothing because Jesus was a liar if if he did not raise. If he did not come out of the grave and defeat death, he's just another guy. And Christians are most to be pitied. Jesus raised from the dead. Why should I believe you? Have you done miracles? Have you raised someone from the dead? Have you given sight to the blind? Have you made the lame man walk? This is the response from this famous sermon. There will be a day where we will go back through Acts 17 at a much more typical pace. I want you to think of the sweeping, overarching principles that Paul is drawing upon to make these kinds of proclamations and the way that the people responded. That's the purpose of the sermon today. Look look at what he says next. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some mocked, some were intrigued, some were saved. The gospel is polarizing. It demands a reaction. Did you know every religion in the world that has had any interaction with Christianity, so those that we know of, has a view, a dogma about Jesus and about the gospel? Why? Because everyone has to make do. Everyone has to have a response to the gospel. Everyone has to have put a category in their worldview about, well, what, what about Jesus? So, okay, with B- Buddhism. Well, what about the Jesus guy? Hinduism. Well, what about Jesus? Judaism say, well what about what about the Jesus who said he was the Messiah? Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. Throughout the entire world, if you find a religion that has ever interacted with Christianity, they have to say something about Jesus. It demands a reaction. So what can we take away from this very famous sermon? Lots of things, I suppose. I just want to point out three this morning. Things that I think were true about Paul's approach with these Athenians that we today in our increasingly troubled times should take to heart and even apply to our lives. Three things that I pray by God's grace would become hallmarks of the mission church. First, a high view of God, a high view of God. Paul was provoked, remember, remember that line? Paul saw the idols being worshiped and he was provoked. Why? Why was he provoked by that? Because other gods, false gods, were getting praise that is due to the one true God alone. That's why. He was jealous for God's sake. This is what compels Paul's evangelism, and it must be what drives us too. I want you to ask yourself the question, why would it be that we should evangelize? Why should we send Christians to the steps of Planned Parenthood to preach repentance and faith and hope and life to the people preparing to enter there? Why? It is not primarily for the sake of people. You have got to get that in your minds. Our witness to the world is not primarily for the sake of people. There is something higher, and it's the glory of God. The reason we evangelize is because there are people out there who are not praising God. He deserves worship from every house, on every street corner, from every institution. He deserves worship and praise and acknowledgement from every one of those. That's the primary reason. And if you put cart before the horse on this and try to say, no, it's, it's for the people's sake, so they may have something good, your theology is going to waver. You're going to find that will not do when push comes to shove. In fact, it's far more significant than cart, horse. Making sure that God being glorified is a first priority for us as believers is more than that. It's more than getting the cart in the wrong place where the horse is. It's the very oxygen the horse must breathe in order to remain alive to pull the cart behind him. What happens when you wake up someday and you don't really feel like loving people? What compels your evangelism then? What happens when you have those Jonah moments? I kind of want them to be judged. Then what? If your first priority is not glory of God, what's going to happen? When you step out onto the street or into the workplace or in your neighborhood or share the gospel over a table, will you even get to that point? I once wrote an article, Seven Reasons Why We Evangelize Even If We Knew For Certain the Person Would Not Be Saved. You know how many people say, well, I I would never go talk to someone on the street. That doesn't produce anything. I have tried it five times. No one got saved. If that's the primary point, I'm not surprised you walk away. There's something more than that. If you do not love God first and foremost, you cannot love neighbor second. You can't. You get it all out of whack right off the bat. We have to have, as our single highest priority... God being glorified. This is why you see this outside as we, you walk in the door. We put this big plastered on the wall. It's not, it's not a little deal that we didn't do it in number one, two, and three. Glorify God, strengthen believers, reach the lost. Glorify God. It's why we're here. It's why we do everything else. All of it flows from this. All religious errors can be traced back to a too low view of God. All of them. All of them. Every false doctrine, every misunderstanding of theology comes down to us thinking too small of God, all of them. If you don't get this right, nothing else will matter. As a church, as a people, we must be absolutely committed to seeing God as he really is and proclaiming that to the world. You cannot think too highly of God. There's nothing else that exists that this can be true of. There's nothing else in all existence that that could be said of. You cannot think too highly of him. You cannot aim too high. Most people miss God because they're aiming too low. Nose in the ground looking for a God on earth. A God of the world, not one who transcends it. God is not a man. He's not a man. How many times? If you've ever done evangelism in Utah and talked to Mormons, you will almost, almost definitely have run into the situation where someone will say to you, well, don't you want uh, your kids to be like you? and receive whatever you receive. Therefore, God wants us to receive the worship and glory and praise that he has. Er, Category error. God is not our species. He is not a man like one of us. When people say that to me, I go, well, sure, I want that for my kids, but not my goldfish. Glorify God. We must have an incredibly high view of God. Do you believe God is sovereign over all things? There is nothing outside of his control. God doesn't pray to anyone higher. These Athenians thought that God needed a temple, thought that they could craft him into their own image. Paul shatters this. Not only is God not a man, but he's not what you think him to be. Both the Epicureans and the Stoics believed in the divine. They did. Neither of them were what we would call classical atheists today. The problem, though, is that they got it all wrong. They thought wrongly of God. He was too little. Simply convincing an atheist to believe in something supernatural is not enough. You know this, don't you? As a church, we must be highly committed to proclaiming the whole counsel of God. Without apology, there is nothing better for our lost friends than this. They need to get to know the one and only true God of the universe as he is. Last week, I spent the entirety of the sermon trying to convince you from the word that we as Christians must regain a healthy embrace of the fear of the Lord. It demands a right view of God. Everything that we do has to start here. First, then, to repeat, Paul conveys clearly a high view of God, and we should too. Number two, Paul exhibited a bold approach to evangelism. Be bold. I want to remind you quickly here how often we see even the command to be bold, or we observe it taking place as the disciples share the gospel. I want to to read for you just just in the book of Acts alone. Just book of Acts. I'm just going to machine gun these out loud for you. Acts 4.13. Now, when the scribes and Pharisees saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Acts 4.29. The disciples prayed, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And the answer to that prayer in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts 9, 27 and 28. At Damascus, Paul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Acts 13, 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Acts 14, 3, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace. Acts 19, 8, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Acts twenty six twenty six. for the king knows about these things and to him I speak boldly, Paul says, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. It's bold, out there. Everyone knows. Acts twenty-eight thirty-one, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. It's all over. That's just that's just Acts. It's all over the New Testament. The other apostles and Paul fearlessly enter into public dialogue and even debates. With the smartest, most powerful, influential, and respected people of their day regularly. How many of you have done street evangelism before? Quick show of hands. How many of you have done street evangelism with one of the mission church teams before? Kind of been out there. Okay. You can testify to this, I strongly suspect. That the bolder you are, the more people you're gonna to get to talk to. Seriously. We go out with teams, every time we have visiting teams coming in from out of town. If someone stands back and kind of holds some tracks and is nervous to go out and hand them to people, it'll be a lot less likely you'll get to talk to them. But if you won't let a single person pass you by in the street without handing a track and asking them a question about Jesus, you're going to be filled with conversations all night long. It literally is proportionate to your boldness. In just a little microcosm of evangelism, that little portion of the time that you share the gospel when you're on a street, that can be evident to you. When you convey an urgency a care for the soul of that other person. It conveys what the gospel really is. The true and living gospel demands boldness, demands urgency. We talked about American Christianity for a moment. This idea of bold witness has become so foreign to us. Many Christians today are surprised and awestruck when they see brothers and sisters acting in boldness. In fact... Most people, even those in the church, don't know what to do with bold Christians. They get really uncomfortable. I can't tell you the number of people that I've had come to our church over the course of of the years that we've been out here and share with me, man, I just want to do street evangelism, and my pastors and elders just get uncomfortable by it. What? I try to give lots of grace to pastors and elders in that situation because there's oftentimes things they're not telling me. A lot of people today, even those here, have a typical Western view. The evangelifish fish of our day feel very uncomfortable about bold evangelism. They often just assume it's unloving, it's impolite, it's inappropriate. Boldness, though, it's contagious. It's contagious when somebody responds boldly to something. You probably know this in other spheres of your life, don't you? When somebody acts with courage, that catches on. Paul was totally alone in the city of Athens. We have no record of there being any other Christian there when he shows up. There are when he leaves. But when he gets there, we don't know of any others. And while he's there preaching alone in the city, he does so boldly. The only guy in the middle of a group. I love the Christian evangelists who go out on the street, partnered up with people. I think that's awesome. I think it's amazing when we pair up and triple up in 10s and 20s and 30s going out there. But every once in a while, I know... Of a brother or sister in the faith who just did it when no one was there and did it for years, like my brother Aaron, for years. No one else is out there. He's going to be there. Why? Because it wasn't for everybody else. It's to give glory to God and be bold, not for a pat on the back. When no one else is there, when no one will be singing praises to you, when no one will be patting you on the back, boldness. We need this again. I think of the lineage of Christians that came from Athens. I can't trace it. I don't know it. But You know, don't you, though, that every one of us who is saved today can trace an unbroken line of gospel witness all the way back to the apostles and then Jesus. All of us. There was no spontaneous combustion of the Holy Spirit in somebody's heart apart from the gospel being conveyed. Either either put onto a tract and they never met the person who did it and went out or printed Bible or they, they heard the word on the street or they knew the person. Some way or another, it can be traced through people, people all the way back to the apostles and then to Jesus. We may learn that, that, that family tree when we get to heaven. And those in the West very likely could trace our lineage back through Paul to Jesus. There may be millions of Christians today because of Paul's gospel witness just in Athens, just this one account. Who knows? Paul's fearlessness was used by God to produce an effective ministry. Some of us are more afraid of being mocked, just as Paul was here. Some mocked. Some are more afraid of being mocked. We are of standing before God and explaining why we had such little confidence as believers in the first place. As a church, we must be bold in our witness. We have nothing to hide. Every doctrine on the table, every truth about God, whether you like it or not, will be conveyed and proclaimed. We're going to do things that make people feel uncomfortable. And how are we going to know if we're doing that for right reasons? Really simple, really simple. You don't just go, what makes people feel weird, uncomfortable? Let's do that thing. No. Here's how we know. If it's here, we're going to approve of it. If it's here, if it's in the word of God, we'll do it. Many Christians today, I suspect, would strongly disapprove of John the Baptist. Would strongly disapprove of men like Isaiah or Ezekiel strongly disapprove even of the Apostle Paul. He's bringing divisions in the church. Some of you might be thinking, I- I'm just not a bold person. I-, I mean, I hear the stories of these guys who go out on the street. I-, I know some of them. Man, I'm just not, I'm not, a- I'm not an extrovert. You know, I was talking to Pastor Benjamin last week. I asked him, brother, this would be helpful. Uh, Pastor Benjamin's soon gonna preach on um, evangelism for introverts, okay? That's coming. Because, uh, You don't have to become extroverted to preach the gospel, to to take part in evangelism. And I'll I'll leave that up to my brother to do that later. I'm not bold like that. I'm not not that outgoing person. My goodness, most people don't know the sound of my voice. I just don't. That's not my, my way. Listen, I just want you to imagine if you could just be a little bit bolder. What if in this last year you had zero people at your table that you shared the gospel with for dinner? Zero neighbors over for dinner. What if you just said, this year I'm just going to have somebody over. I'm just going to share my testimony with them and I'm going to tell them I'll meet with you as often as you want talk about those important things. Just that. Can you imagine what would happen if you just got double in your boldness like that? Just something little? We're not all going to look the same. It's going to be different. God has gifted the church with different skills and, 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 uh, and perspectives and different ways that we're going to do evangelism and stuff like that. Amen to all of that. But if all of us grew a little bit in that, can you imagine what this valley would look like if all the Christians in this valley just said, I'm going I'm to try to be bolder? The enemy hates bold Christians. We must expect that this boldness will paint a giant target on our backs, but we're at war. We're not to hide in the bushes until the battle is over. We are to engage the enemy with overwhelming force. This isn't in here, but one something for you. Some of you don't have a problem with boldness. Some of you are like, I'm typically a bold person. Then perhaps one of your responsibilities as a Christian is to be an example to the other Christians who struggle with this, okay? Help your brothers and sisters see you march forward in boldness. When people in battle are running from the enemy, all it takes is a few to turn around and run right back to embolden the troops. Perhaps God wants you for a time like this. I'm talking about you, kids, 10 and under, teenagers. Do you know how hard it is to try to convince a teenager today that it really is more important to care what God thinks than your friends? If you could do that, if you could convey that, if you could be an example of that, the result could be incalculable. We are to have a high view of God. We are to have a bold approach to evangelism. And we are to have a tenacious resolve to please God rather than men. A tenacious resolve. This is a necessary implication of every gospel encounter in the New Testament. We must have and convey an unyielding loyalty to God and an aching desire to please Him irrespective of whatever the world thinks. You know, it's one of those crazy Reverse irony moments when you hear the world say, don't care what people think about you, when all they preach to you is to care what people think about you. Christianity, we preach that for real. I've been appalled at how many Christians in 2020 have been operating on the assumption that the most loving way to deal with the non-believing world is to do whatever they say we should do. I'll be honest, this has been the single most infuriating thing about this, this year to me, by far, by far. Not the way the world reacts. I know we, all, we know the world's going to react. We might know the details, but we know, we know it's going to be folly. It's going to be God-hating. It's going to be revelry and celebrating wickedness. Of course we know that. But when the church passes our method and plan, our evangelism strategy to the world and says, go ahead and write it for us, whatever you want us to do, we'll do that. What? You're out of your mind. This is absurd. Where in God's holy word? Have we been instructed to let the world tell us how we should love them? Paul, in this sermon, comes right out of the gate. In this public sermon, telling the people why they are wrong, and then the judgment that will certainly be coming as a result of their errors. You can't feign ignorance, people of Athens. Even his love for the lost is influenced by truth. He cared more about what God thought than what the people thought. This is why his audience was curious to learn more about the gospel he was proclaiming. Did you notice the word he used? Strange. They thought it strange. Why? Because it's not like all the teaching that they hear. It's distinct from that. It doesn't just fall parallel in line with all the thinking that they had. Paul's not trying to buddy up with these guys. and Look, our things are basically the same. No, he's not. That's why they say it's strange. That's why the people in each of these towns try to kill them and throw them out and run them out. That's why it's lighting the world on fire, because it's not like their message. Our gospel is unlike the message of the world. We should see this as a great strength, not a weakness. Let the gospel message be every bit countercultural as it's supposed to be. It's supposed to stand out. If we were to survey the non-believing world and ask them, what do you want the Christians in your community to do for you? What do you think that they would say? March with us. Approve of and celebrate our lifestyle. Stop telling us we're sinners. Wave this rainbow flag in our parade. Teach your kids that the world is right and God is wrong. That's how we show them love. According to their strategy, we must not. Doing that would be like parents asking their teenager, how should we parent you? How does this happen? I'll tell you how this has happened. Because over the years, Christians have been gathering around them, teachers, to tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. That's that's how it gets there. It takes little shifts. Why is it that so many churches who have the same Bible look so different regarding their methods? Because of this. Because of this point. They have not set themselves to please God rather than men. Many have explicitly said we want to please men. If you can convince Christians that what is best, what is most loving for the non believers of the world is different than what is best for us, then it will not be hard to convince Christians to give up their desires in order to serve their neighbor. You catch that? I am not saying this is false Christians. I am not saying that at all. Of course, there will be false Christians who are going to prove of all kinds of wicked methodologies. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying to you is well meaning, God loving, Bible trusting Christians, if you can convince them that the more loving and selfless behavior is to not have God's word preached from the pulpit, to not challenge the non believer in their sin, if you can convince a person that that's what's best for their neighbor, Christians might go, Well, I want what's best for them. And out of good impulses, end up in a bad place. Do you follow that? If you convince a group of Christians that the selfless, loving, compassionate thing to do for the lost people in their lives is to not go deep into God's word, is to not challenge them in their sins, not teach them to obey the whole counsel of God's word, to stop hammering on the sins of human pride and lust and depravity and the hell that those sins deserve, you can get Christians to build a secret driven church. Brothers and sisters who will be in heaven with us, whom we love, a church that makes decisions based upon surveys of world opinions. Whatever they want, we'll just give it to them. Do we honestly wonder why so many Christian churches today look so much like the world? Because those churches have been more influenced by the world than by God's word. Look, as a church planter, one of these single most fearful realities that I had to face even before planting was this. People, Christians, can plant a church and multiply that church to hundreds and even thousands of souls and be void of the Spirit of God. Oh, man. You remember that? Jeez, the pressure when we planted a church to just compromise a little bit on God's Word in a few areas was incredibly intense. My family and those who were with us at that time experienced much pain because we refused. This won't honor God. So we had so many kids to build our church, see? (laughs) Church is growing. (laughs) That's next week's sermon. (laughs) Guys, I am such a fallen, broken sinner. I don't deserve any of the good grace of God. He has made me stubborn, though. And my wife. I would not be able to compromise on something and go home and look her in the face. <laughs> so many well-meaning, selfless, loving Christians have bought into this lie. And after decades of operating in that assumption, what do you think happens? You're watching it right now. Churches. Churches emptying onto the street with the rainbow flags in celebration. That perhaps in the next four years, they can revel in sin more than they did in the previous four. We must not buy into this huge lie that is believed by many pastors and even church decision makers today. Do not believe that what's best for non believers is different than what's best for believers. It's not. People need to hear us talk to them like a good doctor who is holding the results from their biopsy. I care about you. So you need to know you're going to die. And there's only one hope to get that cancer out of you. It's going to hurt, and your life will never be the same. You might die anyway. But if we don't do this, there is no hope for you. If you're a non-Christian here today, you need to know this. We love and respect you too much to lie to you. We will not use kid gloves with you. We will tell you exactly what the Bible says, and what we believe that's saying here, for your good, for his glory. Why must this conflict exist? I'm going to close by trying to answer that question briefly. A lot of Christians, a lot of humans don't like conflict. We're just not, we're not made to embrace conflict. It's, it's weird when you know the person who loves getting into the fights, right? It's abrasive to us. And so many will say, well, this doesn't sound very peaceful. No, of course it doesn't, because it's not. This is why Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. He's not saying we're supposed to go out and kill people in battle. He's talking about this very thing. This will divide the world. Family units, households will be obliterated by this kind of truth. Get ready for it. This is exactly what he was talking about. Because Christians and the world are fighting over the same thing absolute supremacy over this earth. Let there be no mistake. Global domination is our plan. That's the plan. But we do it in the name of the King of Kings. And the Lord of Lords. We must stubbornly refuse to yield one soul, one institution, one nation to the grip of the enemy. We must square up with the world and boldly declare, you may not have that. It isn't yours. It doesn't belong to you. It's the property of the king, and he demands it back. There may be certain times in battle where we as Christians need to fall back and regroup we may never fully surrender one tiny fragment of this universe to the control of the enemy none of it we must advance until we win until Christ's enemies have been made a footstool for his feet there will be heavy losses but we fight for something of eternal value with boldness for his glory we must refuse to surrender one inch of all of creation to the enemy It's on this point that we will pick up next week, Lord willing, let's pray. Father, this morning I feel like I have so much more to preach on this text, on this idea. I want to help my Christian brothers and sisters. I want to give things to apply. Lord, help the principles that are being laid out in this passage be helpful in this next week until we come around to next Sunday, Lord willing, and try to give some practical application to what was meant here. But Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts, You would provoke our spirits. Father, that you would help us hate our own sin and fight it to the death. Father, that we would hate the sin that entraps the loved ones in our lives who do not yet believe in you. Father, I pray that you would compel us to bold evangelism with a high view of you. Father, extract out of our lives every ounce of lies that have gotten in that keep us in our minds thinking of you as too small. Father, let us see you how you really are, as much as we can handle here in this life. Father, help us to seek to give you praise and worship and glory, to please you more than anyone else. And Lord, let that be so central for us that we we regularly run all of our decisions and all of our thinking through this grid. Father, am I doing this because of fear of the world or because of fear of you? Am I doing this because I care what people in the world think or because of what I care about what you think. Father, help me as a pastor to do that. Help me as a father and a husband and as a Christian to do that. Help that Christians here to do that as well. And Father, if there is one person here just not yet believe in you, is, is, is not entrusted their heart and their life and their salvation to Jesus alone, that they may be saved. Father, I pray that they would be struck to the heart That your spirit would convict them of sin and they they would give their life and their heart to the perfect, eternal creator God of the universe. That they would set their heart to search what is true forever. That they would grow in a high view of you. That they would join in bold evangelism and perhaps lead, Lord, in bold evangelism. And that they would stop caring what the world thinks but care about what you think. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.